morning, Southbridge. Welcome. What a great morning so far. I'm glad that you're here. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but there was a new instrument. Last week was bluegrass. I don't know if you liked that. That was last week, and this week is the laid-back session. What is this instrument? Southbridge Lounge. I don't feel comfortable saying that. What is this instrument? This is a hammer dulcimer. There's a girl that works in Bridgegate, so let me borrow it. She's learning it. How does that work? So it, Wait, is, talk like a normal human. Okay, it's, it's just science, Jason. <laughs> exactly, okay. Uh, so it's kind of like a piano, but instead of the keys being attached to the, to the mallets and the dampers, just use your hands. Wait, you're already talking weird. Just, okay. just show us how it works. Just show us. Okay. Okay. Let me play. That sounds good. Just don't get this now. <laughs> and uh, how long have you been playing? Yeah, that's the point. That's the point I wanted to point out. Our worship pastor is not a normal human. Okay. There's things about him that are weird. I want to thank the worship team. Uh, They don't get um, much gratitude. Last week, the team, uh, different folks on the team came ready to lead us in worship. And this week, and every time that we come together, we sing about the goodness of our Lord. We sing the gospel. So the style might be different. But the nature and the theme is the same, and that is to make much of Christ. We sing the gospel, and believers need the gospel as much as those that don't need Christ. It's the gospel that enriches our lives and boldens us to live on mission for him. So, and Jad, I just want to thank you for being our worship pastor. Probably, uh, yeah. Next to, um, probably closer next to being a lead pastor of a church, um, the worship pastor faces much criticism. And so I wanted to, I'm thankful that he's, um, he leads me in worship and the team as well. Well, good morning. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. We continue our series movement. I hope that you're glad to be here. I'm grateful for the opportunity that our lead pastor, Scott Lear, gave, gives me to teach every once in a while. And this morning we're on the same, uh, same study, the same series here, movement, which is really the study of the book of Acts. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Acts chapter 11. And kind of playing off this idea of a new instrument, I wanted to look at the scripture today and really was challenged this last few weeks thinking that this passage is really about being instruments in God's hands. There may be a book that you know of or you should add it to your library called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And this is the same idea this morning. What would it look like to be a new instrument in God's hands for the glory of him? For the sake of the gospel and for his glory, for the sake of others. And I think our text this morning points us right toward that. And really what's going to come down to is are we willing? Each one of us individually, are we willing? How would God want to use us? I think the the text answers this, how he might want to use you as a certain instrument for his glory for the sake of others. And the question I've been wondering wondering the last few weeks is just who would benefit from such self-sacrifice? So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn to his word and ask him to instruct us this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. We recognize that you are the Lord. And we want you to teach us. We want you to instruct us. We want you to guide and lead us. And Lord, we invite you to do what it is that only you can do, and that's turn a heart. Expose us to ourselves, Lord, our impure motives, our secret sins. And Lord, help us be willing to deny ourselves to follow you. We need your help to even do that. So as we turn open your word and look at those that have gone on before us in the faith, God, would you use their testimony of your goodness in their life to challenge us and change us so that we could, Lord, be the church that you desire. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, Acts chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 19. By way of review, in Acts chapter 8, for those that have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, those that have converted from Judaism to following Christ, we see that in time there's a movement of these people. They grow and grow in number. There's leadership involved with these people, but then a great persecution breaks out against them in Acts chapter 8, and it's led and approved by a guy named Saul. Acts chapter 9 talks about the life of Saul and how he's basically confronted by the Lord and turns his life over to Christ. And we follow Saul through to Jerusalem, back to Tarsus. In Acts chapter 10, we see that from that persecution, there's believers that are going out and sharing the gospel, and some are coming to Christ outside of Judaism. So now we have Gentiles coming to Christ, and we follow the apostle Peter as he goes and shares the gospel with Cornelius and his household, and they come to know the Lord. So now the gospel has gone out to Gentiles in that moment. And then we come to Acts chapter 11. In the beginning of Acts chapter 11, there's believers that were formerly those practicing Judaism that have now questioned, can the gospel go out to all people? And Peter verifies on behalf of the Lord that, yes, the gospel is going to go throughout the earth, which we've seen from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that God's mission is that for those that are following him, that they take the gospel wherever they go. Hopefully then, Lord willing, all around the world. And now we come to our passage, and it's almost as if Luke, the author of the book of Acts, goes back to that persecution in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, And here we are, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. And we've come to learn that so far, as Luke has laid that out for us. Some people were just really struggling with sharing the gospel with those that weren't like them. This was deeply embedded in Judaism, that we hate the Gentiles. So Luke has already showed us that. Verse 20. Some of them, however, so a contrast, Men of Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned, two different things, to the Lord. What I see here immediately when we're talking about being used by the Lord, people being used by the Lord, is we see the Lord wants to use people as an instrument to engage the world, to, to engage others. So he may, we know that he wants to use people to do that, and he wants to use you to do that. The scriptures tell us clearly that persecution caused believers to scatter, and this happens still today. Wherever there's persecution, in the Sudan, wherever believers scatter, and the gospel just continues to go forward. It's amazing. Persecution usually results in people coming to know Christ. And so we see that here. And some of these folks who were Cyprus and Cyrene, they were most likely Greek-speaking Jews who were converted to Christ. They were willing to share with anyone because it was people that were just like them. We know that Cyprus was an island just outside of uh, Antioch, not far from Antioch, and Cyrene was a city in North Africa. And so folks, as they were in Jerusalem, were traveling back home because of the persecution, they're sharing with anyone, and they're making their way, their way to this city in Antioch. And we don't even know the names of these people. See, isn't that amazing? I think some of us have this idea that we're willing to be used by God as long as we get the recognition. Does anybody know how hard I'm serving? Does anybody know how much I've given so that they might come to know Christ? I need a little credit. And that's hard, isn't it? We want credit for the work we've done. And right here we see these unnamed, Greek-speaking converts to Christ sharing the gospel. And I would guess they don't care that they're not known. They just want people to know Christ. They want people to remember Christ. I'm guessing that that's their attitude. And they make their way to Antioch. And here's what we know about Antioch. Antioch was the metropolis of Syria. Next to Rome and Alexandria, it was next to those two cities in size, wealth, power, a place of of great business and commerce, a known place, a popular city. It was also known for the Temple of Daphne, and where uh, you would go there to practice, you would worship uh, Daphne, you'd worship 
your gods, and you would do so through temple prostitution. So this place was popular because people want to worship a way that feels good to them, and this was a way that felt good to them. And so they encouraged one another to worship this way. And this place um, became known really around the known world. In fact, um, throughout the world, the phrase, the morals of Daphne, the morals of Daphne was slang for depravity. So Antioch is filled with immorality and these persecuted believers make their way to this place and start sharing the gospel. These unnamed Greek-speaking Jesus followers came and shared the gospel. And there's something unique about them that I think ought to be said of every believer that's living on mission. It's found in verse 21. Did you see it? Verse 21. And the Lord's hand was with them. The Lord's hand was with them. In Scripture, when we read about God's hand being with someone or against or for, really it was talking about it's his presence and power. The psalmist talks about being in the Lord's righteous right hand. It's an it's a idea of his power. I can remember growing up and holding my dad's hand on a walk. I can remember him pulling me up out of pools before and grabbing me when I didn't want to be grabbed. And there was power. Well, this is our heavenly father. And you don't want to be on the against side of the Lord's hand. That's a tip. That's a free tip from Toby for you. The scripture talks about the Lord's hand over and over again. In fact, this week in the Embrace Group um, study guide, the curriculum that we put out every Friday, um, I put a little section there talking about you should go and investigate BibleGateway.com and just enter in the phrase, search the phrase, the Lord's hand, the hand of the Lord, and see how many examples come up. And I brought a couple with me this morning in Acts, or Exodus chapter 3. We said the Lord is speaking to Moses about the plan of getting his people uh, away from captivity. So the Lord is speaking with Moses when he says this, but I know that the king of Egypt, that is Pharaoh, will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. Verse 20. So I will stretch up my hand and strike the Egyptians with the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he'll let you go. The Lord's hand relays the idea of his presence and his power. Do you remember this song is a little one? He's got the whole world. He's capable is what that song is about. He's capable. Here's another example then of that passage, that promise of the Lord coming to fruition in Exodus chapter 14, verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed, in the NIV translation from 2011 talks about the hand, when they saw the hand of the Lord. Former translations say when they saw the work of the Lord, that word work can sometimes be translated as hand. When, they saw, when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. And in Moses, his servant. See, we see this phrase, the hand of the Lord, over and over again in Scripture. Sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, sometimes we see that it's against. In 1 Samuel, it says that it's against the Philistines. You don't want to be on that team. (laughs) Jesus by himself makes an awesome team, and you get to be on it. You want to be on him, on his side, with his hand. So we see sometimes it's against. Sometimes we see that the, the hand of the Lord is on someone. We see this in 1 Kings with the prophet Elijah. And here we have with And the understanding here is this, that these unnamed Greek-speaking converts to Christ have been persecuted for the name of Christ. They're making their way toward home. They fall into this immoral city, and they start sharing the gospel, and the Lord's hand was with them. It reminds me of this promise that we read from Christ as he's sharing to his disciples, as he's telling them the plan, I want you to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I've taught you. Look at this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And when you come to your end, 
I am with you. It's a song we just sang. When I come to the end, when my last breath is coming out, I'm going to sing of your blessedness in my life. You are with me. Jesus promises that he's going to be with those that are going forward with the gospel. I believe it's linked. It's the same idea of God's presence and power being with those. The scriptures tell us that for those that are in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within them, which talks about his presence and power going. So anywhere you go to boldly proclaim the gospel, you've got Christ with you. So let's ask this question then. How would your life be lived differently if you remembered this promise? Because what are the reasons that we don't engage the world? What are the reasons that we fight being an instrument of engaging the world with the gospel? I would guess that the answer is this. I'm afraid. I won't be accepted. I won't be liked. I'll lose a friend. All these things, then we decide trump the promise that the Lord is with us. And yet we see these people walking right into this crazy intense city and they start sharing the gospel. Why is that? The Lord's hand is with them. They know that they've got Christ. We sing songs about if the Lord is for us, who could be against us? How would you live differently if you knew that God was with you? Last week, Scott shared, I believe it was last week, shared of my oldest Mia, who's nine, who boldly proclaims the gospel at this park called Blue Jay something. What's it called? Point Park. All I know is it's got awesome grass, and I can't grow grass in my house. And Mia, who's nine, just walks up and shares, and she did it again yesterday. And this is how she starts. Do you believe in God? It's not, hey, I'm Mia. I'm like, shh, cover, smother, just try to get to know why. Who has to teach us to be ashamed of the gospel? I don't know why we do that. I don't know why I would squelch her. How would it change your boldness in engaging others with the gospel of Christ because of your love for them, of course, if you remembered that Christ was with you? At least start off with people that you, that you love already. <laughs> start with them that don't know Christ. Maybe that's too hard. Start with people you don't know then, that they might come to know Christ. See, the, the promise of Christ being with his disciples and the promise of God's Spirit being with us is linked, I think, to the notion of God's presence and power being with us. Let's ask this question then, as good students of God's word, why is God's presence and power essential so that we may be used as instruments to accomplish his mission? The answer is found in John chapter 15. Do you know this verse? It might be hidden in your heart. For without me, or with nothing you can do with me, the scriptures say, without him we can do nothing. And I take that passage to be literal. Sometimes we see hyperbole in scripture, we see sarcasm in scripture. But I don't know if I have the next breath appointed. I don't know if I could do that myself without the Lord willing that and decreeing it. The scriptures say that he's determined the number of my days. So I'm not independent of him by any means, whether I'm a believer or not a believer. I surely then can't go and boldly proclaim the gospel with others so, to a point where they turn to the Lord because the Lord has to do the turning. I have to have Christ with me. And these fellows from Cyprus and Cyrene who will never know their names until we get to the kingdom... They share, and the Lord is with them. And what does God want for us? He wants to be with us so that then we can be his witnesses, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, so that we can be used as his instruments around the world. So what happened? We read it once already. Look at verse 21 again. The Lord's hand was with them, in part B here, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. 
God's hand was with them, and many in the city believed and turned to the Lord. They didn't just agree that Jesus existed. They turned toward him. They gave their lives over to this. They placed their trust and confidence of their future in Christ, in his death and resurrection, what he did on their behalf. They turned toward him. So the Lord is using these unnamed willing men as instruments to do something beautiful inside the ugliness of this city. Hmm. And I don't really know how different this, this city is from, uh, from Raleigh, to be honest with you. We might not have the temple. We have our own temples. And I believe when we commit to do God's will for God's glory, his hand will be with us. I think we can claim that. He will lead, guide, work in and through us for the sake of others. So the question is this, when it comes to being used as an instrument for engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the question simply is this, who will you engage with the gospel, loved ones? Who? Who is your person? We talk about our one, we talk about our ten at Selfridge. Who is the person that God has brought you to, brought into your life or brought you into their life at work? Maybe they're in your family, their own children that have come into your life. Who will you share with? That's the mission. But sometimes we make life about a different mission, don't we? We make our mission about uh, what we want. We say their needs, but actually it's probably most of our wants. We make the mission ourselves, our happiness, which is related to happenstance, things that happen to us. Feeling good. I love to feel good. I don't like to sweat. So why would I participate in anything that's anti that mission? No, but sometimes our mission is at cross purposes with God's mission, which is making the cross known, the cross of Jesus Christ. At one point in history, far-off lands knew of Antioch's immorality, but now, as a result of the Lord's hand working through unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene, a new report is flowing from it. It's a report of salvation. It's a a report of of life change. So look at the next verses here, uh, 22 through 24. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. So the believers in Jerusalem are starting to hear about all these people that are coming to know the Lord. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord a second time, it stated. The Lord wants to use us, and I believe he wants to use people as instruments to engage the world, but he also then wants to use you as an instrument to encourage others. This is exactly what we see here with this man named Barnabas. So the church in Jerusalem hears of the amazing work in Antioch, and as they've done before when they've sent Peter up before and other people up before, they send a representative of their church to see if it's legitimacy. Because there's a real big struggle between the Jewish Christians and those that are outside. Is it really of the Lord? Is it the same? Are we one church? Are we really linked? Is there really a Jesus thing happening there or something else? So they send someone out that they trust, and they send Barnabas. And so Barnabas goes on this 300-mile journey to Antioch. He's sent by the believers in Jerusalem, and Barnabas was the wise choice. He's the right man for the job. And that's important, isn't it? I don't know if any of you have the authority to hire people or fire people, but hiring the wrong person for the job is rough, isn't it? I can remember one time I worked at a place that had miniature golf, and I did not want to be there. And I was paid, it was this Christian camp, and I was paid in coupons for the sweet shop. So I wasn't even paid in cash. <laughs> and I used to mark down the hours and then the, minute, the minutes, which would take longer, but it wasn't wise enough. I was definitely the wrong person for the job. I wasn't passionate about miniature golf. (laughs) 
A better example, if you don't hire people and that's foreign to you, is the idea of using the wrong tool for the job. I can remember one time helping a person from our church paint. We had to open up these paint cans as we got started, and then having to open up the cans of paint, so I used his car keys and I snapped his car key. I know, I'm in the future too. No one was there to tell me otherwise. That was the wrong instrument to use. I'll never forget it. Hmm. Barnabas is the right person. He's the right person for the place, the position, the people. And the scriptures tell us why. Look at verse 23 again. I don't want to miss it. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with their hearts, with all their hearts. He was a good man. This, I think, is the only, one of the only examples in the New Testament of someone being called a good person. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. See, Barnabas' attitude, his personality, as well as his heritage, he was from Cyprus. We came to find that out a few chapters ago. So he's going to minister to people that are from the same place that he was at while they're ministering to people in Antioch. Really clever, isn't it? A Greek-speaking convert to Christ. And he's an encourager. He's perfect for this work because new believers, old believers, they need encouragement, don't they? Barnabas is an encourager. In fact, his nickname means son of encouragement. According to the scriptures, his given name is Joseph. But the disciples who experienced him over and over again gave him a nickname and it stuck. You're the encourager, man. And that's the word Barnabas. I remember giving nicknames to our friends and they weren't that glamorous. In fact, one wasn't that creative at all. His last name was Smith and we called him Smith the rest of his life. Hey, Smith. Didn't mean anything but his last name. But Barnabas is Barnabas. He is an encourager. Acts 11 tells us that Barnabas encouraged them all to remain true with the Lord with all their hearts. And this is huge for new believers because at some point, sometimes new believers hear the gospel and when they're kind of passionate about it, but it goes to flutters away. It doesn't take root in their hearts. Christ teaches a, pro- a parable about such things. But believers of old need to be encouraged to remain true to the faith as well, especially when they go through the valley, especially when they go through tough stuff. And I can imagine being in Antioch, it wasn't all just rosy all the time. And so the church in Jerusalem is very clever in who they send, and they send Barnabas, who was the one that brought Saul to the church. And they were like, oh, this guy kills Christians. And Saul, Barnabas says, no, this is my guy. Real encouraging, real um, trusting, love, trust, the scriptures tell us this. And that's him. People need encouragement. This is why at church here we offer um, our embrace groups. A reason is that people will be encouraged. This is why we offer Celebrate Recovery so people can be encouraged in their pursuit of freedom who is Christ himself. And the scriptures direct us to encourage one another. It's not just one person that had the special ability to encourage. It's actually a command for all believers. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14 gives us a glimpse of what it should be like within the church, meaning believers. See to it, brothers, that means Christians, that none of you has a sinful heart, unbelieving heart, that turns away from the living God. That's what Barnabas is encouraging these people to not turn away from the Lord. Next verse. But encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today. Tomorrow may never come, and tomorrow has enough trouble for its own day. That's what Jesus teaches us. And today is rough enough, isn't it? And we need to be encouraged so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And that's the worst, isn't it? When we as believers, we fall to sin and we become fooled by sin into thinking that that's the way that life ought to go. And where are the believers encouraging that person to turn their heart toward the Lord and away from sin? We need encouragement. But here's the truth. Some of you have the spiritual gift of discouragement. Some of you are very good at criticism. 
And some of you have believed that you're strategically placed in people's lives to make sure that they know who they are. <laughs> you can be at a birthday party and everyone's singing happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. Just know you're, you're closer to your dad. <laughs> we don't want to be around you. I'm very skilled at pessimism and sarcasm. But that has never been known to bring life. And people want to be around encouragers. They need it. The scriptures command it. Will you be an instrument used by God to encourage other people in their faith? Somebody say, well, you know, I'm a realist. Yes, you're a real jerk. (laughs) Can you encourage people? Can I encourage people? Will I be willing? And the Lord is willing to use you as an instrument for such, just as he did with Barnabas. So let's ask the question, loved ones. Who do you know in your life that needs encouragement in the faith from you? It's easy to shot call about people, especially other believers, when we don't believe that they're performing like they ought to. When we are pretty sure that they're not imitating Christ. And there is a way to actually inform someone of that by encouraging them and uplifting them at the same time telling them the truth of that they're going the wrong way. Did you know that? It's possible. And the way it's possible is because the person hearing from you knows that you're for them. You're not just wanting to criticize them to show how different you are and I'm above you. Saying, I know what it's like to live in this world. I live in an Antioch. I just want to encourage you to keep fighting for the faith, to persevere. I want to encourage you to live on mission today. I encourage you to love your wife as Christ loves the church today. I encourage you to train up your children the way they should go. I encourage you not to forsake the gathering believers. I encourage you to get involved with other believers and encourage them. They can all be said to people that aren't doing those things, but it's a way of saying it that you're for them. So the Lord perfectly uses these unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene to start the work and then Barnabas to continue it and he was perfect for the job. He was full of faith, the scriptures say. He was full of the spirit, ready and willing to do the good work that God desired. And I believe that God is calling people today, right now, July 28th, 2013, to be the perfect instrument for his purposes. And that could be here. He might be preparing you to go somewhere else in the States or abroad. I believe that's happening through this church right now. I bet there's someone here that he's been teaching you lately that you can trust him implicitly. You can trust that he's with you so that you'd be free to go wherever he leads you. How is it possible these folks just walk into a new city that they don't know about? Or Barnabas leaves the comfort of Jerusalem and the believers there, the for sure thing there, and walks into this thing of uncertainty because they know the Lord is with them. Let's ask the question then, am I willing to be used? The Lord uses those that are willing. He crafts you, molds you into the usable instrument for the good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 are the really popular ones. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this isn't of yourself, so no one can brag about it. It's the gift of God unto eternal life. But verse 10 talks about that you are God's masterpiece. The word there is poema, which means work of art, which you were created to do. You're created as this work of art. You're being built and molded and crafted. The next, verse, the next part of the verse says this, to do good works which God prepared from the beginning of time. So in God's sovereignty, when he turned your heart toward him, and for me it was in 1984, he starts building you and crafting you and letting you go through the ebb and flow in life, the highs and lows of life, and usually it's the lows of life that we learn the most about Christ. That he builds us, he sanctifies us the most, usually I would guess during the low parts of life, the hard parts of life. But not for yourself, it's so that you can be used as an instrument for the engaging and the encouraging of others. Are you willing how do we know that this engaging encouragement worked here in this text? 
Well, the Bible tells us. Look at part B here, verse 24 again. He was a good man, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It's working. God's mission is being accomplished. Great number means massive multitudes. So again, now we have this mega thing happening here, just like in Jerusalem. This church in Antioch started growing, is what the Bible's saying. It started happening and working. The Lord used Barnabas then as an instrument for life change in others. And the truth is that God will use people of faith that are willing to be filled by his spirit to do, accomplish his mission. Are you willing? And as the church in Antioch grew, there were more people and more people coming, more people that needed to be encouraged and equipped. So they need more people to do the work. And that's the next part. Look at verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to find Saul. Many scholars believe that Saul, once he went to Tarsus, was sharing the gospel with everyone. He experienced a lot of his trials and sufferings at that point. And when it says um, went to, it means that he searched for him. And when he goes to find him, it was a hard work to find him. So Saul's been ministering to people. Barnabas wants him to be his teammate to come help and enrich the lives of the people in Antioch. And he finds him. When he finally finds him, he brings him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So I believe the Lord wants to use us. He wants to use us as instrument to engage this world, to encourage other believers, and also then to equip others with the gospel and for the gospel. He wants to use you as an instrument of equipping in other people's lives. See, when Barnabas brings Saul to Antioch, what did they do? They did exactly what God wants them to do. They did exactly what Jesus commissioned all disciples to do, and that is they made disciples. What does that mean? It means simply, in, uh, in many words, it means to share the gospel with others and baptize those that believe and turn to him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it also means to show others who Jesus is. Who did that for you? Who are you doing that with? It means to show others who they are in light of Jesus and what God wants, to show people what God's word is and its meaning for their life, to train men, women, and children to imitate Christ and to live out the gospel, to train them toward doctrinal maturity, that they wouldn't stay babes in the faith, but they'd grow old in the faith, old spiritually, spiritually mature. It means to encourage believers to live in genuine, biblical, authentic community or fellowship. It means to multiply Christian leaders, and we actually see this for this church, a little um, uh, spoiler alert here, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, Antioch starts sending people from outside them, and it's trained people, new names that we had not seen before, so that means it's going to work. So question, loved ones, who is supposed to make disciples? Disciples make disciples. I'm thankful no one said Pastor Scott by himself. That's a view of church, though. Hey, Scott, we'll bring them to you, and you make sure you do it. Ephesians says that pastors and other people equip believers to do the work of the ministry. So somehow over time we got it backwards. It was like, make sure you bring everybody to the man. He'll take care of the rest. No, disciples make disciples. Who discipled you? Who are you discipling? Who are you informing and building up and encouraging and equipping of these things? I love that we have here one of the one of the many examples of someone inviting someone, asking someone to be on their team. This happens over and over again in the scripture. Barnabas and Saul did this together. And the Lord used them as instruments of discipleship in Antioch. They strengthened the believers. And incidentally, let me just say this. It's okay to invite someone to join you to make disciples. It's okay to invite someone to say, let's start a group at our church. Let's start this 
ministering to others in this church. Let's work together. Would you join me? Would you make disciples with me? Would you serve on this team with me? There's lots of teams to serve on within this church and as this church in our city and in this world. You can invite a friend that you love and trust. That's permissible. Many times I think in history God has called a person through the candid request of another. This is kind of what I experienced Several years ago, it must have been eight and a half years ago, Scott called me, our lead pastor Scott called me when he was in training for a church planning in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I was in student ministry in Greenville, South Carolina at a fellowship church, and um, Scott was church planning, doing the residency there um, at a fellowship church there, and they said, we believe in team ministry, Jason, I was wondering if you and your family would be on my team. And I'd just gone through a season of telling the Lord, I'll do whatever I'm going to do. I don't want to rely on me anymore. I want to have to rely on you for something. I don't want to simply only work with students and think I can do it by my own, myself. Lord, would you lead me to something that you have to come through in? And then the invitation came. And it's the scariest thing we'd ever done. Hardest thing we'd ever been a part of. But the invitation was to go and make disciples in Raleigh. We didn't know if it was Apex or Chapel Hill at the time, but that was the invitation. So we went knowing that the mission was to make disciples, to plant a church, not necessarily knowing where we were going to land. The question we each have to ask, though, when we come across texts like this is this, is who are you going to equip? Who are you going to engage? Who are you going to encourage? Who are you going to equip? Because disciples make disciples, not just the professional ones. So let's ask the question of the text. What came, what became of the disciples that Barnabas and Saul equipped? Verse 26 again, part C. The disciples were called Christians, were first called Christians, called Christians first at Antioch. They became known as Christians. This is the first mention of this word, the first mention of the word Christian. It's only used three times in Scripture. You'd think it'd be mentioned more often by how many times we say the word. It's actually two parts. The first part is Greek, Christ. It means Messiah. And I-A-N-S, the suffix, is a Latin suffix, which means the party of or the, the followers of. So it uh, means belonging to the party of. So putting, put together, it means Christ party. I don't know if it always looks like a Christ party. Christ people, followers of Messiah. This term was probably most likely given by the Greeks, the pagans, upon these Jesus followers to distinct them from the Jews. The Jews wouldn't have done this because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they wouldn't call these people Messiah followers because they don't think that Jesus is the way. So somehow in time, this was a term to set these people apart. Somehow they were living so much with Jesus on their mind and on their mouths that they became known as these Jesus people. I read this week um, that during the British colonial era, era, that the word Christian became synonymous with Englishmen in India. So it didn't matter how much a person lived like a godly life or an immoral life that, or whatever, that didn't matter. If you were from, if you're an Englishman, you were Christian. What do you think this word has come to mean now? Anti-people group, pro this. What do you think? In your minds, where you live, move, and have your being, what do you think people think Christian means? Would you be called that? And would that actually look like Christ? That's what I've been confronted with this week. What does this word come to mean now? What do you think what others accuse you of being one? And you may say, you know what, well, it doesn't matter what other people think. And I think that's half true, except for it matters what the Lord thinks. And we want people to have an accurate view of the Lord. The scripture tells us to imitate Christ as good little children. How are we doing? 
For these people in Antioch, they became known as Christ followers. We're to be Christ's witnesses. Does our witness point to him or to something else? What definition of Christian does your life, does my life reveal to God, do you think? I've been wondering this week for myself, does my life look like the hand of God is all over me? All throughout my life? Or maybe just on Sundays and Monday through Saturday is for me. When someone hangs out with you, do they kind of catch like Holy Spirit residue from you? (laughs) I know people that are like that. Does, Does your life seem to be a little bit like Jesus? I'm guessing that if you ask the Lord to use you as an instrument to engage the world of the gospel, to encourage other believers, to equip other people, this would be the accusation of your life. You seem a little bit like Jesus. And that would be a great accusation, wouldn't it? What definition of Christian does your life reveal? Does it reveal a person that desires to engage, encourage, and equip others with the truth of God's word unto them authority or something else. I'm judgmental. I'm anti-people groups. All they care is what you get and say. They don't care about your life. I'm really into politics. I don't really care about what your life is just as long as you agree with me. I read this week that Christians didn't call themselves Christians until the second century. Have you heard that before? Why do you think that is? I wonder if they had like the humility to not want to <laughs> say this of themselves. They wanted, to, they wanted to be accused of it, I wonder. But the truth is that people started recognizing Christians as a distinct group. And from this group, ministry started going from it to others. And we don't always get to see the fruit of being used by God. That's the truth. We don't always get to see the results of engaging and encouraging and equipping. I think about this week, I was thinking this week, I participated with student ministry. I was a youth pastor if you've been involved with church, you may know that phrase. As a youth pastor, working with students like 6th through 12th grade in the college, seven years, and I often wonder what's happened to the students that I spent the most time with. I'm friends with them on social media, which doesn't mean much, friends, does it? It doesn't mean much. It means we just spy on each other and all that. And I wonder, how's, how's it going for them? You know, we don't always get to see the fruit of it, but in this text, we get to see the effect. So let's look at this last section here. The last few verses, and then we got to go. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders, first time we ever hear about elders in a church, by Barnabas and Saul. So they send Barnabas and Saul ahead of them with a financial gift to bless the believers in Judea, most likely Jerusalem. We're actually getting to see the effect. The church was growing in number and reputation. The believers in Jerusalem then send more folks to encourage the believers in Antioch, some of which were prophets that come with words from the Lord to either encourage or warn. That's what a prophet does. And one such word was of arriving famine. And Luke tells us that this happened during the reign of Claudius, and I'm so thankful that he put that in there for readers to come. Because we know that history tells us that Claudius ruled from 41 to 54, and during the year 45 and 46, there were great famines in Israel. 
So I asked myself this week, what purpose would there be for the people in Antioch to know of an upcoming famine? And why do we need to know that that happened? I think the text tells us, look at verse 29 again. The disciples, each according to his ability, so this is not talking about the believers, the Christians, according to his own ability, which means if you were wealthy, you gave much of your wealth, and if you didn't have much, you gave what you could, decided to provide hope for the brothers living in Judea. And they sent it along with the leaders in their church, to the leaders there. I think the reason why they had this prophecy and why we get to read about it is the prophecy then provokes new believers unto generosity. The Lord uses then the generous spirit of the believers in Antioch as an instrument serving the believers in Jerusalem and meeting the needs that would arise from such a famine. So they send resources and Barnabas and Saul back to the believers in Jerusalem. And I think that this is the sing-songy progression that we see over and over again through the scriptures and then even unto today. We see that people go and then some people come to accept the gospel. They grow and then those people give. They give of themselves. They give because of their love for others, because of their love for the Lord and love for others. They, they give. They give financially. They give of themselves. They give of their time. And then it happens again. Then some of those people then go. People then grow. Then they give. And then they go, grow, and give. And it's this, the song of the gospel. And you're invited to be the instrument in this orchestra that God is doing. And he's orchestrating. He's playing. And he's using it. And it's a beautiful song to him. There's no dissonance at all. His mission is happening and you're invited to be a part. Will you be a part? The prophecy benefited God's people back at Jerusalem, the sending church. Southbridge has experienced some of this as well. We've, we experienced the notes of this progression song. This church ministry, a church ministry in Little Rock sent us. They too were planted 30 years before that. Scott did the church planning residency along with Shannon. Then they invited us to come. Then people gave money so that a church could be here. People from Michigan, Japan, Pennsylvania, Texas, all over gave, and they'll never be a part of this church. And then they gave to be here, and then more people started hearing the gospel. And some people, many people since we've been here seven years, have accepted the gospel. And then now Southbridge just sent people from outside of us to the world. Did you know this? So it's happening again. We're experiencing the Bible. We've sent people to Panama. We've sent people to Uganda, Indonesia, Madagascar. And some of you have gone to visit those people. And some of you, it's time for you to go. You know that God is leading you to do something. You know that God's presence is with you. You just need to be reminded of that. You need to be encouraged. And I need to be equipped to do such a work. And it's time to go, isn't it? Southbridge financially now partners with ministries here in the city. And some of Southbridge's members, covenant members, serve within those ministries. It's happening so the overriding principle is this. If I were to make a run-on sentence of this section of Scripture here, it would be that the Lord's hand will be with his willing people so that many will be brought to him, becoming like Christ, ultimately demonstrating his love and generosity toward others to accomplish the mission. Who's in the Lord's hand will be with those people. It'll happen over and over again. And people will go, and then people will grow, and then people will give, and then people will go from there. Then they'll grow a church somewhere else or believers somewhere else, and then those people will give over and over and over again. So the legacy of Antioch is that it started by unnamed people sharing the gospel with unreached people. And those people now believing and turning to the Lord, then becoming a generous sending church. And there are more Antiochs here and around the world that need to be started. There's, an existing, there's existing Antiochs that need to be encouraged and equipped so that they too can become a sending church. Oh, that Southbridge would be just like that. God is going to use Christians who are willing, full of faith and spirit-filled as instruments to do his work. So closing questions, as you evaluate your life with the Holy Spirit's help, who will you engage with the gospel? 
What believers will you encourage in their faith and perseverance? Would you commit to not being a critic? Would you commit to not employing the gift of discouragement? Who are you going to equip and disciple? Who are you going to put yourself under to be discipled by up here? And are you saying to the Lord, use me as an instrument for life change, will you? Let's pray. Lord, for this morning again, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here, and God, I ask that you would do a mighty work in each of us. That you would help us become a people that are willing to go wherever and share with whoever, whenever you want. That we would say to you, here is our lives, use us. Use us as an instrument to make a song that is beautiful to you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Give us a love for it. Give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we be filled by following you. Thank you for your love and your long-suffering patience with us. Lord, may we indeed find rest in you, rest for our souls. And may we find a new boldness because we know that you're with those that long to make much of you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.